You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Hey, I'm Johnny. I use he, him pronouns. I'm going to share a message with you. Let's pray before we uh, get going, though. Pray with me. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's the first Sunday of Advent. Advent means arrival. It's the season of waiting and wondering and wandering. We are hopeful for what is to come but sit in some fear because we are uncertain of exactly how it will express itself. And even in how the greater culture enters into this time, there is a lot of hopeful anticipation for what is to come. So when you see hopeful anticipation around you, even if it isn't clearly a Christian hope, see it for what it is. See the yearning for what it is, the desire for what it is. Don't let your cynicism eclipse that. Each Advent season is a season of waiting for mysterious hope, the coming Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. During this season, we sit with individuals who have awaited the Messiah themselves, as we await the Messiah ourselves. This week we start with the prophets. The prophets, they're in the Old Testament, they're in the New Testament to an extent, in their spirit showcase a new way to imagine how the world can be. They're unencumbered by worldly consciousness. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a rabbi who marched with Martin Luther King in the 60s, says that the prophets bring about this new order because their vision aligns with God's vision. He says the prophet is a human who sees the world with the eyes of God. In the sight of God, even things of beauty or acts of ritual are an abomination when they are associated with injustice. Prophets do not simply act for the ideas of justice and compassion. They are not proclaimers of justice as if they are speaking in the name of moral law. Rather, they speak on behalf of God's justice and God's concern for justice. They are uh, they're hyperbolic, too. A speck of injustice, even in a sea of beauty, is still worth repudiation, is still worth rebuke. That's what the prophets say. They hyperbolize, they exaggerate, so that we, we can feel what God feels. Heschel tells us that the very rationality of the world is in stark contrast with the way of God. He says, what is most rational to the prophets seems irrational to us. And because Christians ally themselves with this God, they are no longer operating with the understanding of the world. So they act as fools 
to their worldly detractors. This is why Paul tells the Romans in chapter 12 that we are no longer to conform to the patterns of this world. <clears throat> why in 1 Corinthians he calls the cross foolishness. Why he proclaims to the Philippians that the peace of God surpasses understanding. God is operating with a different framework, undoing that reality and that consciousness that we dwell in. This new consciousness is not meant to merely allow us, this new consciousness doesn't just allow us to transcend our worldly suffering, but actually to engage with it materially, without fear, without mindfulness of worldly political constraints because we are assured the coming victory of Jesus. Because we serve a God who has defeated death, our politics are oriented toward defeating death too. Our political imagination overcomes worldly consciousness, and now we can say, no, it doesn't need to be this way. Our prophetic imagination allows us to name what the world calls impractical. Practical. What they call impossible, we can call possible. Because we serve a God who rules over all worldly political orders and subverts them with God's political order. For us to bring about this new consciousness, we need to interrogate what dominates our consciousness. To consider how we're dominated, we need to think of the underlying assumptions of our society, and even our church, that go without saying. We are looking for the foregone conclusions. The foregone conclusions of our church, of our society, that we generally all agree about. What are those things? What are those things that um, build our society that we don't have questions about? The prophetic imagination allows us to challenge and critique and demonstrate an alternative to those conclusions. The passage from Jeremiah that we read at the start of the meeting, we'll have it up here now. Brian, can you get it up? Oh, it should work? I have two. I picked the wrong one, but there's two. One worked. I'm definitely going to pick the wrong one again at some point, so bear with me. The passage here was actually inserted into Jeremiah 33. Do you want to know why, or should I just keep going? Why do I think that it was inserted in it? Because it is not, it, it, it is not in the Septuagint. It is in the newer Hebrew translation. Okay? So, uh, <clears throat> there was a Hebrew translation of the Bible that we don't have anymore. It became Greek during like the Persian Empire, um, when the Persian Empire um, occupied Israel, and Judaism became global. We call uh, the Septuagint 
we call it the Septuagint. And in that form, verses 14 through 16 aren't in it, but they're in the later Hebrew Bible, and of course, <clears throat> in our current translations. So we know it was inserted. Now why was it inserted? Because by the end of Jeremiah, the kingdom of Judah will fall to the Babylonians, and Jerusalem will fall with it, and they need hope. And so this passage represents that hope. Things are not going well because of the arrogance of the last king of Judah. His name is Zedekiah. Who, who, who Jeremiah pleads with, please submit to Nebuchadnezzar, but he refuses. Now why does Jeremiah insist that Zedekiah and Judah submit to Nebuchadnezzar? Because God grants the land to Babylon. Because Judah had a series of bad kings and disobedience to God. And so God is using a worse nation to punish a bad one here. Submit to your punishment. God is resolute in doing this. God is angered at the injustice. And if Judah brings about injustice through its bad kings, God has no issue forfeiting them to a worse nation. <clears throat> or allowing them to perish completely. Jesus continues in this tradition when he says, going the wrong way. Can you get the stand castle up? Oh, that, yeah, that's what I want. Matthew 7, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jeremiah and Jesus have no issue saying that resistance to God's justice, resistance to God's righteousness, will lead to the downfall of your nation. And I think the same exact lesson applies to churches, y'all. Our arrogance can sometimes get in the way of that, can't it? Here's what happens to Zedekiah, who was arrogant enough to defy the Lord's words delivered to him via Jeremiah. Six chapters earlier, now I have given all these lands into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him even the wild animals of the fields who serve him. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this king, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, then I will punish that nation with the sword with famine, with pestilence, says the Lord, until I have completed its destruction by his hand. Pretty straightforward what's happening here. If you resist Nebuchadnezzar, we'll wipe you out. Zedekiah ignores this warning and breaks an oath with Nebuchadnezzar, which leads to Babylon's overtaking of Jerusalem and Judah. God wanted Judah to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, and to Babylon to receive their punishment. Resisting God here was not in the interests of Judah, but rather resulting from the arrogance and you could say political insanity of Zedekiah. If you submit, you'll also escape unnecessary pain and death. But Zedekiah's arrogance moved him further 
So, as they say, despite being uh, outgunned and outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned, he resists Jeremiah and God, and the fate of Judah is secured. Zedekiah's rebellion is a bad calculation, politically and militarily. Babylon had already crushed Assyria, who had crushed Israel, the other kingdom. And there's no chance that God's people could overcome this. And further, God was not interested in his people acting in heroic or militaristic ways. But Jeremiah's objection is not done in the name of political expedience, but rather because of his fidelity to God. Jeremiah knew when it was exposed to God and shared God's truth with these people. But despite being destroyed, Jeremiah offers them a remnant of hope in the passage that we read above. There is a remnant of future hope. And the writer places it in the passage in the middle of a massive and political and military conflict. There's a remnant of hope where both Judah and Israel will be honored with the promises that the Lord made to them. There's a branch that springs up for David. The Davidic dynasty will be restored. The united kingdom of Israel will be restored. And what will happen when it's restored? Judgment and justice. Restoration to what was as we enter into what's next. Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live safely. And God's name will be one after justice. God's name, the Lord, is our justice. That's the name of God. <clears throat> we will know God as the just God. The remnant of hope that Jeremiah prophesies about is not specific. It may not have even been explicitly about Jesus. It is about a future eschatological hope, the future hope in what's going to come. Jeremiah is prophesying an end to injustice because the God named Justice will arrive and be faithful again. So as we await for Jesus to arrive in this time and place, and some of you are yearning for Jesus to come, some of you are in your own captivities, personally and otherwise, some of you are in a situation where you do feel like you're under captivity by those foregone conclusions that we can't imagine a world without, right? Like the market is a force like that, a, a, that, that we can't even imagine without and we feel like we have to do it, you know? Like work, working, like selling your labor is something we all have to do, basically, right? That's the kind of Babylonian captivity that a prophetic imagination can break you out of. But there's other forms that dominate us. Whiteness, white supremacy, right? Um, patriarchy, heteronormativity, all these assumptions that we see oppressing us. We're hopeful, we're hopeful that the Lord will come, will arrive, will return and disrupt those things. That's what Advent's about. Advent's a disruption of the political order, of the things that we uh, think can't change. So we hope for an end to injustice and for judgment and justice to follow. 
if we stop moving with God because it feels uncomfortable, we won't let that justice and just judgment come. When it arrives, it won't feel good, especially to those of us whose worlds are being disrupted. And if the efficacy of the prophet is based on the comfort of the king, it doesn't work. That's not how you judge the prophet. We know that the repercussions of not listening to the Lord's words will lead to destruction, though. So Judah's fall is a warning to us, but we can endure because of the promise of God. The reason I can suffer now is because hope is on the way. Our journey towards becoming an anti-racist, anti-oppressive institution requires us to enter into painful and personal work of divesting from worldly power. For Zedekiah, he failed to obey God and continued to let his pride lead him. He tried to preserve Israel. He thought resisting God would preserve Israel. The opposite happened. He tried to preserve Israel, and he ended up forfeiting Israel, or Judah in this case, right? So much of the anti-oppressive work that we're doing in Circle of Hope, in the church, to some of us seems to threaten the basic way of Circle of Hope. What does that mean, y'all? What is that saying? Who is Zedekiah in the story? What's happening with the prophecy? God tells you one thing, you say, no, I have this, and then the Babylonians take over you. What's going to happen to us? If we cling to what we knew or what we think was important, we, and, if we, and we don't follow the spirits guiding us, we can expect our house to fall. And frankly, if we're doing that, it should. The hope of Advent is that something new is coming. We can continue to suffer as we fight injustices like forces of death, like racism, because of the one who will liberate us, the one who is named, the Lord is our justice. We have a remnant of hope in the midst of our turmoil and our oppression and our occupation among the forces that occupy us. This world isn't the way it should be, and we still await for liberation from our captivity. So listen to the prophets among us who empathize, empathize, empathize with the pathos of God, the feelings of God. Be attuned to it. Listen to them so we can counter the consciousness of the world that reinforces our oppressive systems. If you hold the position of power, if you're in, on the throne, that means positional power, societal power, structural power, embodied power. Listen to the Jeremiah's around you that are telling you to obey God, even when it contradicts what you think you knew. Zedekiah is wondering, why is this prophet telling me how to run the country? Listen to the prophets. We can imagine a new possibility because of our attunement to God and to the arrival of God the one who will liberate us. So we're going to practice this hope this season with each of these people that listen to God. The prophets, John the Baptist, Mary, 
the shepherd. They're coming to show us a way. Hold the mystery that somehow this baby Savior will be the Lord of justice. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.